Welcome to the Art of Grateful Leadership podcast. I'm Judy Umless, creator of the Center for Grateful Leadership and author of three books, including Grateful Leadership, Using the Power of Acknowledgement to Engage All Your People and Achieve Superior Results. I'm also Senior Vice President at the International Institute for Learning, IIL. I first met today's guest, Brandon Fargus, at the Project Management Institute North Carolina Chapter's annual conference last year. I was delivering a keynote address and a breakout session on grateful leadership, and he was leading a group on opening organizations to neurodiversity. We were taking a break in the speaker's room and got to chatting about each of our driving passions. Sometime later, I asked him to be a presenter on IIL's Leadership and Innovation online conference, and later to be the guest presenter on our Center for Grateful Leadership monthly webinar. He did an outstanding job with both of these engagements. I was extremely impressed with the way in which he tied our two initiatives together with this perfect title and delivery. This was for the Center for Grateful Leadership. Leading in a Neurodiverse World, Stories of Grateful Leadership During Uncertain Times. And what a great storyteller Brandon is, which I'm sure you'll get a sense of during this podcast. Brandon also has an impressive background. He was a key player at various top technology and software companies and has developed what he calls a knack for scaling growth and transformation that he teaches can't occur without a people-first approach to leadership. He was also chair of the neurodiversity community at Red Hat and is currently vice president process management technology at Mitsubishi UFJ Financial Group. Brandon, I'm so pleased to have you at yet another IIL event. Welcome. Hi, Judy. It's great to be here, and thanks for that warm introduction. It seems like just yesterday that we first crossed paths in North Carolina, and I'm just so grateful that we did because it has really provided us with several great opportunities to share ideas. Oh, it's been amazing, and and don't you just know it when you meet somebody and you really connect on a deep level that something great is going to happen from that? I I love that kind of uh, connection. Oh, absolutely. And it is true, especially when you connect at a level that you know the ideas have good um, just synergy and, and you really just know right away, hey, there's something to be learned here. So I'm really grateful that we made that connection and yeah. that we've been able to just continue it. Yes. And, and I won't tell about the two great Netflix series you have recommended <laughs> to me also. That's, that's right. just a little uh, side benefit. But, that's uh, right. Absolutely. Yeah. Maybe that's the <laughs> trick. We Anybody that you feel the, uh, if you have something in common in the business world, you should find out what they're watching on Netflix. Oh, that's it. Good. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> oh, I love it. So before we really get into the meat of this, can you please define the term neurodiversity for all of us? Uh, sure. Yeah. Neurodiversity, you know, it's a pretty straightforward definition, but it does sound, I think, a little complicated on the front end. Um, and I think that's what trips a lot of people up because it sounds a little scientific. But the simple answer is that our brains all have a fundamental biological wiring that we just can't escape. It's how we're born. 
And for some of us, that wiring falls within cultural or social norms, while others diverge from those norms. And I highlight cultural or social norms because that's sometimes all it takes to be considered what we would call neurodivergent, while others um, would be just what we would call neurotypical. Um, and so I say that those are the definitions, neurodivergent, neurotypical, um, to start out, because then we get into where we go from anything being an extreme, right? And with those extremes, we see labels. Um, so yeah. some of those labels may be ADHD, autism, um, even part of an array of mental health needs. I mean, even dyslexia. So all this to say, it's really just um, that our minds are really as unique as a fingerprint. Um, but in the end, it really is just different, not less, right? And to yeah. quote someone who I'm really uh, see as, a, I think, a celebrity in the neurodiversity world, it's Dr. Temple Grandin. Um, it's, it's different, not less, right? Different. Yeah. So that's where I like to begin these talks because it really is a good starting point. No, that's great. And I, I just found the whole topic uh, fascinating because we all know people who now we can realize are neurodiverse and some of them are the most amazing contributors. And, you know, you would never see it as um, a negative, but for them, they are going through their own needs and concerns that we may not be so aware of. So, how did you first become aware of aware of and interested in neurodiversity? Was it when you were working at Red Hat? Yeah. Um, well, I'll take you a little bit further back in time. Um, yeah. Yeah. As you mentioned, I'm you know I, in my day job, I'm a transformational leader. So my career has been a lot about leading large organizations through big changes, and in general, just trying to be what you have deemed a grateful leader throughout it all. Right. And as I moved through my career, I caught on to the fact, quoting Cotter, is that to be successful at change, you really have to win over the hearts and minds of people. Mm -hmm. And what I was finding is that the minds of people are so very different. And I realized that this difference was so fundamental. And I wanted to learn more about that and how I could affect change for different people in better ways. So I went back to school in the probably 10 years or so into my career. I went back to college and got a psychology degree with that goal in mind. How can wow. I help affect change for individuals in a better way? So after completing that degree, I took away so many things. But one standout for me was that organizations by and large, we're approaching a lot about change in a very sterile and cold way. Mm -hmm. I mean, they do what they can using models built for getting things done quickly, but they tend to ignore what I believe to be truly at the heart of change. And you mentioned it earlier, change must be people focused to succeed. So when we look at change through the lens of people, we realize that we have a sea of diversity in organizations today. And it goes far beyond what the Myers-Briggs-based assessments that so many organizations tend to lead uh, to when you ask them how they explore individual differences or neurodiversities. Um, and that can be up-leveled, right? And, and it has in so many cases today. Um, what I mean is that to truly focus on the person, individual, um, we have to understand that there is a 
that fundamental wiring that makes us all different for good reason. And those differences can make us great at some things and crummy at other things. Mm -hmm. And those differences should be celebrated, understood, and in many cases, just um, built, right? Built in good ways. Um, But the only way this type of understanding, that this type of uh, leadership can scale within a large organization is through good leadership, right? Mm -hmm. And where I see such an amazing intersectionality between our conversations is that grateful leadership is the only way to grow healthy and innovative organizations today. Wow, Um, thank you. Yeah, no worries. I mean, it makes perfect sense. And it's not something that can be, you know, I think you get this. It's not something that just can be rained down from the top. It's personal. It's one-on-one. It's got to permeate the culture of an organization. It's got to be like groundwater after a week of rain. It's kind of got to rise up, right? Mm -hmm. So all that told, when I came to your point, when I came to Red Hat, I could tell immediately that there was a great deal of focus on people. And it was Mm -hmm. a clear driver of their success. There was a groundswell of gratitude throughout that organization. And part of this was from within their communities. Some companies call this their employee resource groups. But at Red Hat, this is kind of like that on steroids Mm -hmm. due to the passion that Red Hatters tend to put into things. Um, One of those groups that had just started was focused on neurodiversity. And uh, and that's really what we talked about. It's the concept that says we all have fundamental differences in our biological cognitive wiring. So um, this had kind of built up from several parents of neurodiverse children that had come together to support each other, along with other several uh, neurodiverse colleagues and just others who wanted to explore well-being in the workplace. So I kind of joined in to learn how I could be an ally through my understanding and education and just happened to fall into it, I'd say. I was later asked to be a leader, and I'll share a little more about that later, but it really helped to grow the group. So that tells you a little bit about my, you know, how I kind of, I just used the term stumbled into neurodiversity. and It was a a good fall forward, I'd say. (laughs) That's amazing. And um, I'm just curious about your uh, degree in psychology, was there something that kind of planted the seed for neurodiversity to settle into? I mean, was there some course that you took or program you were involved in that opened your mind to it? Well, I think as part of, I think as part of practice or as part of the science, I'll say, of, of psychology is just the core understanding of how um, how we work as individuals, you know, the cognitive wiring, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I can name many courses, but um, there was one in particular that was probably one of the more difficult. Uh, it was just talking specifically about cognitive uh, learning, just the learning of how, you know, the wiring, I would say, of how we process information down to the, just to how we receive the information, process it, and just you know, how that affects our behaviors. Okay. Um, And it was just so very scientific, first of all, but it was just understandable and traceable. And that was one way. But then there's so many other courses as you explore psychology that it's hard not to say, as a business person approaching this, you're just like, okay, I can see why individual A in this scenario accepted change or information differently than individual B, especially when it was presented in this way. 
um, it really right. goes beyond what we were taught in business school, you know, um, also having an MBA, you kind of start to see how there are so many better ways to affect change in an organization or relate to individuals to prevent what we may see as change resistance or what we may see as um, low performance or all these different things that we often perceive as problems in an organization yes. or maladaptive things, which are really just fundamentally rooted as people are different. They're going to receive things in different ways because it's the way they're wired. And if you can rather see that in a, through the lens of let's empower those individuals to be their best whole person in the organization they're in, you know, it really just changes the entire dynamic. So I learned so much through that, um, that it just empowered me to see things, I think, differently um, and approach problems differently and approach everything in just a more, I think, humanistic viewpoint. And it was really cool to go through that. That's wonderful. It sounds like something we should all do. Well, <laughs> but, it's, uh, it's a still a trouble, you know, it can still be a real painful curriculum. <laughs> I know. It sounds very worthwhile, though. And, I, you know, it kind of brings home to me the need to appreciate the unique contribution of every individual. And every individual is unique and contributes uniquely. Uh, I, I'll never forget uh, the story I heard of... Um, uh, somebody wrote to me after reading The Power of Acknowledgement, and she said that there was a, a person on the team she was assigned to that everybody tried to avoid like the plague. And he had a reputation because he was so negative about everything. And she, she gave the book a little bit of credit. She said, I set out to see what there was that he was really trying to say and what was his contribution supposed to be because everybody just tuned him out every time you know he would they would be working on a project and he would say that's going to fail and uh, and no one wanted to know why they didn't even ask him why so she started asking him why and he came up with things no one on the team ever thought about and she was shocked and the team members were shocked and suddenly he began to uh, have a place on the team. And <laughs> she, at the end of the project, she said, you know, you are a brilliant failure analyst. <laughs> that was the term she gave him. And his jaw dropped. He said, you know, you're the only person I've ever worked with who wanted to hear what I had to say. And, you know, it's it's so disturbing to hear that. But at the same time, he became one of the key players on future teams after that. So, you know, if we if we can see their unique contribution, it's uh, it's, it's a real win win. But so this community that was formed, you said it was at the early stages that you joined. What happened with that community? And. And was it a success? What impact did it have? Oh, yeah. And it, is, it was such an amazing story, and I really enjoy sharing it. Um, when I first joined that community, it was a very small group, and it wasn't very well known at that time. Um, communities at that company, at Red Hat, they are grassroots. So in short, if you have if you're an employee and you have an affinity that you want to build a community around, uh, you have to 
build up a group of people with a similar interest and have an executive sponsor sign on and then make a pitch to the executive committee um, to kind of get it formed and funded. And there's some other things that take place that had just taken place maybe 12 months, maybe less prior for the neurodiversity group. And they were seeing around maybe 10 people join their calls weekly and join their events. Uh, there were a few of us that pitched in to help coordinate and run things. And I was really enjoying helping connect the group with a few of my connections in the academic world to help bring in speakers and really nice. just bring some connectivity yeah. and highlight the various neurodiversities. Well, after a few months, they really liked that. They said, hey, can you come in and take on a leadership role within the group? So I was really happy to do that. Right. Um, and over the course of a year, we received good feedback and brought in more speakers. And we just started to speak to a range of topics that went from you know, eating disorders to domestic abuse. We had meditation sessions. Oh, wow yoga luncheons. We had educational sessions with community leaders that spoke about resources for parents um, of children on the spectrum. We really had something for everyone, neurodiverse or not. In fact, our first company-wide Red Hat um, Neurodiversity Day uh, was spotlighted in 2019. It had become so large at that point that it was seen as a key focus globally within the company to bring awareness to mental health needs at that point. So by that point, and it was by that, I remember the end of that year, we had over 1,500 employees as members of the community. And we regularly saw our events attended, because we did them virtually at that point as well, by several thousand associates globally. So conversations had begun happening in the office that had never occurred before. There was a, for example, there was a neurodiversity chat room, and I remember this very well, where people would join in and they would just ask each other, hey, how are you doing today? Um, they would mm. encourage each other wow. throughout the day. They were talking about what they were struggling with openly. You know, I'm having a really tough day with my anxiety problem today. Um, and then people would just join in. We've got you, you know, if you need any help, Aww. let us know. And it was just so amazing to see oh. that openness, that vulnerability, that support structure that honestly, um, it, you, you know, you think about a large office um, and usually those things don't happen, um, you know, in a corporate environment. Usually that stuff is happening from someone that's really upset at their desk quietly just chewing on it or maybe going into yeah. a lunch room and crying a little bit and then coming back and just you know it, it eats at them um, but here we had created a support structure and I, I'm an um, I'm really an humble person but as I reflect a lot on my career uh, this particular community really touches my heart it's one of the best accomplishments um, I so many emails and kind words from all over the world uh, thanking us for the different events that we had put together for this community. Um, but really, one of the more important things to me about the success, you know, we saw as examples like, you know, how after an event, you know, anytime you speak somewhere, there's always people who kind of linger and they wait, you know, for mm -hmm. everybody to kind of shuffle out so they can speak to you. Well, there would be people who'd linger and wait for the speakers about various topics. And I would see parents, you know, going up after there may have been a subject about uh, maybe someone on the spectrum. And say, you know, I just wanted to thank you. Um, you've given me some new insights that are going to help my child um, in a new way that I haven't heard before. 
or just knowing now today, because, you know, we're all in lockdown throughout the world. And there were certain topics that we were broaching that were really on the edge of like, you know, we're talking about suicide prevention and we're talking about this to people that are in the APAC regions where that's a really high percentage. They don't talk about these things, you know, that's a real thing for them and across the world. And, you know, you think about this now where everyone's in a shutdown mode, they're locked in their homes. And you think about having talked about some of these things that really could help, could have helped people. And maybe we've prevented, maybe we've helped some outcomes to be better. Um, So it's just really, for me, I'm really just grateful to have had that opportunity and the outcomes really spoke for themselves. And and this was really grassroots. It pulled us um, to build more, you know, and it was hard to not. It was amazing. So um, it was a great experience. That's fantastic. And, And such an inspiration because any company can do that, it seems. And that, aren't there some large companies that are actually seeking out neurodiverse individuals to work there, like, you know, putting it into their uh, ads, their job ads and things like that? Yeah. And, you know, recently I had the opportunity to look at data regarding companies like that. Um, and I spoke about this in one of my larger talks. Um, they're actively changing how they recruit to hire and how they performance manage, how they train their leadership. Um, There were several that were really visible in their efforts and names like Deloitte, Yahoo, Google, Oracle, SAP, PwC, Mm. Amazon, you know, Red Hat, some of these all come to mind. All of these companies stood out as either active in recruiting for neurodiverse talent or having communities around neurodiversity. And the funny thing is we're talking about neurodiversity, but many of these things, like we said, they really influence a lot of things that help, you know, broader, you know, they just, it helps everybody, but it's focused on neurodiversity. In fact, um, when we talk about these companies, something cool is they're really focused on neurodiversity. And if you did an online search for some of the names I just called out and you added neurodiversity to it and recruiting, you would see some really cool images on how they specifically recruit for uh, neurodiverse talent um, in really innovative ways. Like um, I think one of them had, Hey, they're targeting people with OCD. So they're saying, Hey, look, we know that you're wired to see things. We don't come Mm. help us with quality assurance because we know that you'll do it better. Oh, Um, that's how that win, win, (gasps) talking about really plays out because they know that you know they they deal with some things they have to they're challenged with their OCD symptoms but they recognize that there's a cool company out there that understands the dynamics at play but they also understand hey there's some real benefit here and we want you so come come check it out Um, and that's a really cool story Um, there's some other examples where Yeah, and there's really some cool examples of internship programs that I've seen lately. One in particular stood out to me near my hometown. um, I've seen examples where they're doing internship programs for people on the spectrum. And that would, like, recently a company called SAS here, um, they went as far as to train managers on how to take this talent in, right, in an internship. They train them. They understand how 
you know, how they could work with them more accretively. And they said, hey, um, this talent often has the ability to really understand complex pattern recognition and detail recall. Um, so they want that to be a win-win. And, and I understood that they had a really high success rate and often offered full-time uh, gigs to these workers. So it was really cool. But all that told, I, I don't just, in my talks, I don't always like to just shine a light on how neurodiverse individuals have like superhero talent. Because <laughs> that's, that's not the right message, right? It's important to understand the full, like look at both sides of the coin. Uh, the real win-win is that, right, there's, the bottom line is one out of four associates that an employer has is already neurodiverse. I mean, that's the data. One out of four associates already employed by a large organization or any you know, organization, statistically speaking, is neurodiverse. So they may not be visible. They may not be talking about it because most of the people cover. They don't want you to see that they're struggling. Right. What's important and why we've talked a lot about this is that to be grateful leader, um, be a grateful leader is to create a safe space and a better place for your employees to feel able to bring their whole and belt, you know, their best self to the office. And if you can instill that in your culture, I can assure you that you're going to have a more healthy and innovative workplace. And when you create a culture that realizes that some individuals are just never going to speak up in a meeting room that's ultra bright lit and full mm-hmm. of executives, and that's okay. Yeah. It's just not for them. They're no less of a person, and they're going to still crank out amazing ideas. And even further, when you create a culture that creates different avenues for that same person to contribute in equal, less in-your-face ways, well, you're bringing everyone to the table of innovation. And you're really allowing them to be fully part of that conversation. You'll be more respected for it. And you're going to have a stronger outcome because of it. So that's kind of how I see it all working together. That's amazing. And what a, what a wonderful message for all of us to hear. So um, I know that in the uh, webinar we did a couple of weeks ago, you gave some phenomenal stories about, you know, how grateful leadership really created that safe space for some neurodiverse individuals. Do you want to tell us one or two of those? Yeah, I can. uh, Let me tell you a little bit about, um, I can use some examples here, kind of like, you know, the culture, for example, of creating a culture of um, grateful leadership and how it kind of makes a difference to neurodiverse individuals and kind of interweave some of those stories or maybe a story or two. And, you know, the reason I um, like to talk about um, the win-wins, the culture, it's like, um, culture, a culture of gratitude. It, it provides that opportunity. Um, it really provides that opportunity in a bi-directional way to benefit both the organization and the individual. And yeah. when I talk about culture, I tend to break it out into its various elements, um, not just the kind of abstract, okay, the culture. So I'm like, okay, the workplace environment, the organizational processes, the leadership, the people, the values of the company, and its training. That way we have something more material to talk about. So if we look at that in a story, and let's just say that, you know, there was a person named Bill that, 
recently, um, neurodiverse and has been a rock star engineer engineer for the past six years. And I, I know this person's been struggling silently for ADD all of his life. Oh, wow. Prefers not to take meds because they just numb the innovative spirit that he feels he puts into his work. And um, Bill has been working for that same company, you know, and in the same office, really, in the same space for the entire time. But due to all this COVID and everything else that's going on, everyone's working from home. So during this time, his work is slowed and his code quality suffered a considerable amount. And it really, it's just because he can't focus at home. He's got kids running around, they're out of school. He's got the same distractions many of us are dealing with. Yes. <laughs> you know, and, and his, his boss and his teammates are noticing. Now, he's never told anyone that, as I mentioned, that he's struggling, he's silent. Um, no one knows he's ADD. He's just been able to manage it quietly. So when we think about that scenario, when we think about a culture of gratitude. You know, we think about what's a grateful leader going to do in his example, and how do we compare that with an ungrateful leader? Well, you know, we think about Bill's boss, and we fortunately has a grateful leader, and he assumes mm. good intent. So at their neck, at their one-on-one, they talked about things, and and his boss did just have a conversation about not. You know, he says, how are things going since the change? And do you need anything, right? Oh, and it's like, you know, Bill fills that opportunity to say, hey, you know, it's been really tough staying on task since the move. And I could certainly use a headset for noise isolation. And the company then says, you know what? Um, we're going to cover it. Um, and he gets it, puts it on. And while it's not perfect, it definitely helps. And because it helps Bill, they say, you know, it could help everybody. So they say, you know, here's a couple hundred bucks. If you need anything for your work from home accessories, just use it. Oh, so, you know, beautiful. what could have been a really, you know, are you, you know, that conversation could have went from an ungrateful leader to have been, you know, your metrics are slipping. Are you doing your work? Are you staying on top of things? Um, that's really kind of an accusatory, you know, tone rather than saying, hey, I know things are different for everyone. How's it going? How can we help? Um, you know, we hear that trust. We hear that gratitude. We hear empathy. And we didn't really hear anything about neurodiversity. We never heard it. So right. when we consider that one in four are neurodiverse, we may have to think about those types of conversations taking place more often. And that's why I like to talk about culture being something that's material because I believe and I've seen examples of how, you know, look, um, training is so vital for our leaders. And especially now when it comes to neurodiversity, I believe neurodiversity should, training should be part of every people manager's diversity uh, training requirement because being able to lead with that in mind helps prevent a lot of tension helps create a major culture of gratitude that really embraces the open conversations that we just kind of step through. And it really helps drive innovation versus, you know, kind of stall it out. So that's kind of the scenarios I'm seeing. I've heard a lot of examples like that in the last few months as we're dealing with more and more disruption for the normal flow of, you know, I'm being moved from my workplace, I'm in a different style of work, things like that. But that example that you gave about, you know, offering not just the neurodiverse employees, but other employees as well, you know, a couple of hundred dollars to get what they need to bring themselves 
into the best possible environment while working from home. I mean, that, that's a wonderful, wonderful action. Um, are, there, are there any others that you are aware of uh, from companies that are, have, have truly supported the neurodiverse group of people working there? Well, I think a lot about the hiring process, right? There are a lot of actions that can be taken in the hiring process. We talked about how people are recruiting in neurodiverse talent, mm -hmm. but you know there are good examples to be seen in how they actually go through the process. I, I think a lot about how when you know people we talked earlier about how people process information differently, you know, and that goes right down to the job descriptions that we post, right? And, and when we think about okay. We are looking for an energetic so-and-so type of individual. You know, we, we may have just excluded, you know, nine or ten people that could be great for that role. Uh, not everyone's going to be coming in. The, you know, not everyone's cut out to be just super energetic day one, right? Doesn't yeah. mean they're not going to be great. You know, the wording matters these days. So, you know, thinking about, you know, what am I looking for? So, and a lot of companies are doing well at that. But also describing the interview process is very important. And I'll lay it out like this. Yeah. It's like, you know, helping people who are, let's say you have an anxiety disorder, right? And that's something that a lot of people, one of the more common mental health needs in really in the world. But if you have an anxiety disorder and you're going into an interview situation, even a neurotypical person is pretty anxious going into that. Uh, it's good to know. <laughs> what you're going to be kind of part up for, who are you going to meet, what's the process like, you know, the whole shebang, just having that written out and provided to an individual, you know, this is the person you'll meet, this is where you'll, you know, this is how you'll come to the building, those things that seem so commonplace that just doesn't happen in a lot of orgs, but it goes a long way to diffuse anxiety. Also, just think about the experience. If you're in the person's seat and you're having to sit there for you know, hours on end and just in a small conference room back to back, you know, you'd be shocked at how many people just, you know, it feels like you're a caged animal for four hours just having to go back to back. It's just, it's a pressure cooker. So, you know, trying to make that experience just through a human lens, not, you know, outside of even neurodiversity. It only amplifies in that case. So really thinking about that, a lot of good companies have just thought about it, really tried to diffuse it a bit, and you know, educating their hiring managers is a big part of that. Um, and making the onboarding experience just more, I think, known is a big key to that. So that's another example that I've seen. Yeah, and I love your idea of having all management trained in neurodiversity and how to recognize it, how to support it, how to, you know, create a safe and comfortable environment for the variety of people that they are going to be managing and leading. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's also another good example that pops in my head uh, when you ask about, you know, what are good companies doing? And that does build into the environment they're working in. You know, right now we're all generally working from home or many, right. many of us are. However, one of the chief chief obstacles for many neurodiverse employees is just around their work environment. Um, in fact, a lot of early studies right now are kind of in contrast to the one I shared earlier. Um, it's to say that people who were, you know, who are at home right now are finding an uptick in productivity. And 
it's kind of baffling to some, but it's not too baffling to those of us who have been close to this work for a while. And, you know, they're saying, well, why is productivity increasing? Well, over the last few decades, we've seen a real love of open office spaces. We love that, right? Mm -hmm. We love how it brings people together. We love how it increases what we believe to be collaboration. However, if you are neurodiverse in certain ways, it is a tough cookie, right? I mean, it really is because what you've got is a, a really bright space, a lot of distractions, and sometimes you're nested in between you know, 50 or 60 other people in a small little cubby hole. And if you suffer from panic disorders or if you're one of those individuals who just has a fo you know has trouble focusing it, it becomes really hard to be productive so what i think we're seeing right now is that individuals who do good working from in a quiet space well they have that space at home and they're able to be more productive right now when we uh, you know fast forward in a few months from now they're going to have a hard time readapting so as employers, it's important to begin thinking about that reacclimation process for our neurodiverse people. It's going to be a adjustment. It's going to be adjustment again, just as much as it is to go to the home place to work. It's going to be hard to come back to the workplace to work. So these are yeah. things that I believe that companies have started to think about. We see it in our workplace environment. Some of the more progressive companies have started to say, how can we make the environment more supportive, dim the lights a little bit, you know, those simple things, um, you know, trying to put noise producing machines so it kind of drowns out the mass hum, you know, there's a lot of things that people have done for their, uh, what we call, I think it's just workplace um, environmental planning, you know, different teams that have different names, but um, just thinking about the space and making those considerations where, you're, where it's possible, um, or just as we mentioned a minute ago, handing out a noise dampening headset uh, goes a very long way. Yeah, and I've even been hearing uh, that some companies are considering not requiring everybody to go back to the workplace. If they're working effectively at home, that then let them stay even when things get better. But, um, you know, that's going to be a, a lot of change, you know, that, that has to be sorted through. Um, but maybe there's a new sensitivity that is possible in, in that this uh, pandemic has brought forth. You know, we like to look for the, the positives in it if we can. Yes, absolutely. And just being able to have a more flexible workplace, um, you know, option is really key. I know for me personally, I enjoy working remotely, even in the, in the normal time. In fact, I do right now work 100% remotely and it's a good, it's a good thing for me. Yeah, um, you know, I enjoy not having to deal with the traffic every morning. It's a great thing to not have that stressor in my life. Um, you know, and that's just even being, you know, neurotypical. Uh, but you add, you know, anxiety or other things into the mix, and uh, it just would be in some cities in America unbearable. So yeah. I think having those flexible workplace scenarios is just, you know, a great thing, a really great thing and a, a, and a really solid progressive way to be, especially with the technologies that allow it today. Yeah, absolutely. And I've, I've been Zooming and Microsoft Teaming. And I mean, that's my whole day is uh, meeting <laughs> after meeting. But I wanted to ask you, as we uh, near the end of this podcast, 
What's next for you, Brandon, in terms of moving this initiative forward? You know, I mean, it's something that I wrestle with all the time about grateful leadership, how to move it forward. And I've, you know, identified a few key areas to bring the initiative toward. So what about you? What are you thinking of? So my goal is right now, and we're still in this kind of awareness phase for a lot of the conversations we're having. It's like my goal has been to keep these conversations moving forward, to keep these fires lit, to continue to be a voice for this topic. Um, This community, you know, is very underrepresented right now. There is a great deal of masking. There's a great deal of silent suffering regarding neurodiversities, mental health issues, and challenges with neuro, just in the entire community. So for me, bringing a visibility and awareness is kind of like the first stages of just really shining a light on this initiative right now. Um, You know, it's just very important. And I know that the community as a whole, um, well, in my experience, having just having experienced past periods in my own life where I've dealt with personal anxiety periods or issues, I know firsthand how difficult it can be to suffer in silence and feel like in the workplace or whether it be through a mission like this, you're constantly being asked to pour more of yourself from a glass that's already empty. So just having the energy myself and the ability to shine lights and put that energy into a mission like this, it's, it's something that's fulfilling. So um, when we, you know, consider how much time we spend at work, uh, we really owe it to ourselves, we owe it to our organizations, we owe it to really associates and future leaders to continue to shine a light on those needs. So what's cool is really realizing for me, um, I guess it's realizing with each conversation I'm having, there are probably hundreds more happening in small pockets all over the world. And as with all things, momentum will build. And every time I speak in an event, someone else asks, hey, tell me more about this. Kind of like what we did, you know, and then I'm asked yeah. to tell the story again and share more with another group. So for me, you know, what's next? You know, it's just been an honor to be able to answer the questions, to continue to share, to see it activate in other pockets and I just remained a grateful servant leader, especially in this mission, so that I can just be available to organizations in the hopes that, you know, I can help them in their journey toward creating better environments for neurodiverse talent. I really believe that it, you know, as these conversations continue to happen and spring up in the grassroots way, like we saw at Red Hat, like we see at other organizations, more positive change will occur. And we really need that. Um, we need all the positive change we can right now. It's it's vital to innovation. It's vital in our mission of continuing to build really a culture of uh, grateful leadership in, in your words. And, you know, it's what Temple Grandin, one of the other quotes I like by her is that, you know, different thinking is where progress and in, invention and discoveries lie. And I think she also says the world needs different kinds of minds to work together and right now I'm probably more than ever. So you know, that's kind of my answer to that question. Well, that's a fantastic answer. And the follow-up question is, well, how can people reach you if they want to explore ways to incorporate this kind of program into their own organizations? And I'm sure there are many out there who are saying, oh, we need this. We want yeah. this. Yeah. So how do they reach you? Well, I encourage them to reach out to me on LinkedIn, first of all. That's a great way to reach out to me. 
Um, also, you could shoot me an email at, um, well, actually, I just refer uh, LinkedIn as a primary point of okay. contact. You'll find me right there. Um, and I'm happy to entertain any uh, requests or questions there. Um, yeah. I think you're the only Brandon Fargus on LinkedIn. Is that true? I, I sure am. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's an honor. That's an honor these days, yes. <laughs> for most people, there are like 50 of them, and you have to figure out who's who and what's what. But right. Brandon, it's just been another wonderful pleasure to help you get this important message out to people. And uh, I hope they'll share it with everyone they know. And thank you so much for being our guest today. Thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. Until we think of the next collaboration, okay? <laughs> okay. Thank you, Judy. You're welcome. And in closing, I want to remind everyone that if you want to join the Center for Grateful Leadership, you can go to www.gratefulleadership.com. Admission is free, but the experience is priceless. And I'll personally welcome you when you do join. You can also reach out to me directly by email. And the email address is judy.umlas, U-M-L-A-S, at IIL.com. So please remember to acknowledge someone or many someones each and every day. Until the next time, I'm Judy Umlas.